Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. Today, we start the Advent season a week early. I say that because technically, the first Sunday of Advent is next Sunday in the standard church calendar. But since Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday this year, we're starting the Advent sermon series early. That way we get all four themes of Advent in before Christmas Eve. So this series is titled, There is Room, and we begin today with There is Room for You and Me. Pastor Ben will look at the opening to the gospel according to John to kick off our series. And just as a reminder, you can always check out our church, Cathedral of the Rockies, on our website and on our social media platforms. There you can see what is going on in the life of our church and even connect with us online. Links are in the show notes where you can check us out. And with that, enjoy today's sermon. moment we're going to light the candle of hope on our Advent wreath. The word Advent comes to us from an ancient Latin phrase meaning until the coming. We're anticipating the coming of Christ. So we're not just looking towards the coming of Christ at Christmas, but preparing for his coming again to the world. It is a period of spiritual preparation in which many Christians make themselves ready for the coming of the Christ child. Each Sunday leading up to the celebration of the birth of Jesus, we make room. This Sunday, we make room for hope. When the world is frightening, we desire to escape from the ongoing suffering. The womb of creation invites us to remember a hope within. It is the hope within us that leads us to transform the conditions around us. Would you say this next phrase with me? We cling to hope in a world full of despair. We search for it. We dare to discover hope in the small yet magnificent moments of our days. Let us light this candle of hope as we remember the God with us. One of the most uh, symbolic things for me about the Advent wreath is that the hope candle is always the first one lit. And it's always the one that burns the longest throughout Advent. And when, when in some previous assignments, I've uh, had Advent wreaths with the real wax candles, and boy, it gets messy at the end of Advent, right? But as you can see, the hope one is like this small <laughs> at the end of Advent. And sometimes that's such a metaphor for how we can feel with our hope, right? That it feels like it's burned so long and we're just down to the the last bit of that wick and it becomes fulfilled in our life. Maybe not in the way that we expected, but we find that peace. And that's what it speaks to me and I hope that that metaphor speaks to you as well. We're looking at John 1 through 18, Um, today. And we're going to be asking this question, how can we make room for you and for me um, as we ponder this this passage today? 
This is probably one of the most unpopular Christmas narratives, right? We look at like Matthew and, and Luke's Christmas story because it starts with the, the manger, all the nativity scenes that come from Matthew and Luke. Here we have a very different description of the God coming to earth. So let, let's listen to these words from John. John chapter 1, um, listen to how he describes Jesus coming into the world, and then we'll think about this together. Listen to these words from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came so that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him, and he cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Let me read that verse again. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has been made known. The written word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is a really fitting passage for the beginning of Advent because it causes us to think about Jesus coming into the world in a different way. I don't know about you, it is so unclear. <laughs> I have always been confused by this passage. In the beginning was the word. What does that mean, right? And so there's two objectives I want to work with you today. I want to clarify what the word means that John is talking about. And then as we reflect on what that word means, how does that impact our lives today? That is the main question of every sermon, right? How does the scripture impact us today? Because my friends, our view of God impacts everything. How we view God impacts how we view ourselves, how we view other people and the world around us, right? Right? So if we have just an overly 
a wrathful view of God, guess what that's going to cause us to be in the world, right? If, if we have a, a view of God that's apathetic and not it working in and through the world around us, what's that going to cause us to be in our own faithfulness, right? So our view of God really matters, and that's what John is trying to get to here. Matthew's audience is largely Jewish. Luke's audience is a mix of both, and it, it shapes the way that they write to their audiences. Who would you guess that John is trying to speak to here? Greeks, where we get philosophy, right? We get lots of philosophy. Our main sources of philosophy come from the Greeks, and so he is trying to speak to a Greek audience and describe to them the primordial nature of God that is coming in Christ Jesus. And he uses a word that would be really familiar to them. But I don't know about you, I'm not a first century Greek person. <laughs> the word logos would have been highly common and impactful to them. But today, the word logos, especially when it's translated in English, it, it's really, really far from its original Intent. So we're going to look at that, hopefully bring some clarity. I had some clarity in studying this, and my whole job is to hopefully make it clear for you. So if you leave just scratching your head more, then I didn't do my job well. So hopefully we can think together, bring some more clarity to this, and understand God maybe in, in a clearer way today. I just want to first say that uh, in my studies on this very ambiguous passage, I'm in debt to Sharon Betsworth, who's the vice president for academic affairs and professor of New Testament at St. Paul School of Theology. Her perspective, not only as a scholar, but as a woman on this text, really, really helped expand my view. So although John does not contain a birth narrative, you keep, if you're looking for a manger scene in John's first chapter, you're not going to find one. <laughs> Well, and this is the birth narrative in the beginning of John's origin. It's an origin story for Jesus. Where did Jesus come from? Who is he? And why did he come into the world? That's what John is trying to convey in this first chapter. It is describing that Christ is the eternal pre-existent word who was with God from the beginning of God's own existence. And God doesn't have a beginning. God has always been. As a birth narrative, it declares that the word is the only child of our divine God. So John's reference to the word in this prologue reflects language that's also found in the Hebrew Bible all throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few examples of when it's used. In the opening verses of Genesis, God speaks creation through the word in the beginning. That same word was used when God gave Moses the law at Mount Sinai. It was those words, those logos of God that was given and written on the tablets. And it's the same word that is prophetically spoken by every prophet sent to Israel. It's this logos, this word of God that is spoken to the people. So John's description of the word translated from the Greek logos also parallels the personification of wisdom in the Jewish tradition. Just as John declares that the logos was with God in the beginning, so too is wisdom. Proverbs 8.22 says this, the Lord created me at the beginning of God's work. And this is wisdom speaking. Wisdom was created in the beginning with God as well. 
Wisdom is personified in Proverbs as a woman, since the Hebrew word for wisdom is feminine. And logos is commonly translated as word, but it has a broader semantic range, including that by which the most inward thought is expressed. You have those moments where you know you have said what is truthfully on your heart, where what is inside was clearly expressed. You ever experienced moments like that where you felt your truest self was reflected? And maybe it wasn't even you who said it. Maybe you read something powerful or you saw a movie or a piece of art and you said, that resonates so truthful with what's in here, in my soul, in my heart. Well, that's what Logos means for God, that God's truest being, truest reflection is becoming this person in the earth. This Logos is the truest reflection of who God is. So I like this understanding of Christ as Logos. The Christ is not just a word from God, but an expression of God's very essence, God's own nature. If we want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus. God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but because of Jesus, we do. So by the end of the prologue, this will be enfleshed out as Christ becoming a beloved child of God in the earth. Another layer to this word of Logos, word, is life. Life is another characteristic of this Logos presented in John. John 1, 3 through 4 says this, All things came into being through the Word, and without the Word, no thing came into being. What has come into being in the Word was life, and the life was the light of all people. All people. (laughs) God's word who will become enfleshed in Jesus brings life and light. And the gospel of John uses the word life, which is um, the Greek word Zoe. And we have a little girl named Zoe here who attends children's church. And that's why her dad picked that name because it's the word for life. And she brought life to his, his life as well. So named her that. The Gospel of John uses Zoe, the word for life, 19 times alone in this first chapter, (laughs) and 17 times in combination with the word eternal. Life and eternal life are virtually synonymous in the Gospel of John. And the related word verb to live, which is zeo, is also used 17 times in the Gospel. John's emphasis on life is set against the backdrop of an ancient world in the first century in which disease, hunger, and mortality were realities for so many people, especially for children. And by the end of this prologue that we just read, the language shifts from God and the Logos being together in the beginning to a father embracing a young child. In verses 1 through 14, the one with God is called logos, light, life, or simply by the masculine singular pronoun, him. In verse 6 begins to put the logos into historical context with the introduction of John. John, not the author of John. I know that's confusing. John, not the author, but John who? 
You guys are all following along so great. It's John the Baptist. So John is saying this is who Jesus has been from the primordial history before time was time. And this is when God is entering into human history, the time of John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been prophetically said that would come and prepare the way for this time in history when God would enter the world. So in verse 14, when the word becomes flesh, another relationship is introduced and described in our passage. The proximity and the relationship of the Logos and God. The Logos is like a father's only child, or as some translations state, only begotten. Ever Have you heard that phrase recently? The only begotten son. That's King James Version for you. The scholar Gail O'Daly puts it this way, that the adjective used here, meaning only son, monogenesis, is derived from the words mono, meaning only, and genethene, meaning birthed or begotten. So while begetting is the male role in conception, the dual meaning of ganthene, which includes birthed, is distinctly a female act. This suggests that gender definitions are being transformed here. The divine parent becomes the one who both begets like a father and gives birth like a mother. And although monogenesis is often translated as only son, I would suggest here that only child is in a more accurate translation since the Greek word for son does not appear in this passage at all. Only child. Throughout the New Testament, monogenesis is used to indicate a unique relationship between parent and child. Indeed, this only child for whom the fourth gospel speaks is close to the father's heart, as scripture says, or more literally stated, is in the bosom of the father. The Greek word translated as heart or bosom in this passage, which also means chest or lap. So in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, this word often refers to the carrying of children as in Numbers 11, verse 12. It says this, Did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a suckling child to the land that you promised an oath to their ancestors? This and other uses in the Septuagint seem to suggest a small child, an infant close to the parent's heart. I consider this to be John's version of the birth story of Jesus, akin to what we find in the Christmas stories at the beginning of Matthew and Luke. Through this metaphorical imagery of poetry, the phrase in the bosom of the Father describes the close familial relationship between God and Jesus, the parent and child relationships that the terms father and son are meant to point to. This is a place in our reading of the Bible where we need to remove some of our glasses that we read these passages through. And one of the glasses for me is to remove that gender glass <laughs> where I, we often see God as this patriarchal mighty father. But what would it mean to see God, God's motherly attributes as well that John is trying to point to here? When I was in seminaries between 2010 and 2012 and terrible as 
is often the case. I was trying to remember a time as a millennial, my country propagated the longest war in the Middle East in American history, the war in Afghanistan. I was trying to remember a time. I don't know a time without war in the world as a millennial. And I was born in 1985. <laughs> I can't remember a time that there wasn't conflict going on in the world. In seminary, there was a terrible ethnic cleansing happening in Syria. And I don't know if you remember some of the viral images that happened during that time, but extremist Muslims were killing Christians and extremist Christians were killing Muslims. And one of the most powerful photos that came out of that conflict was a group of Christians that were linked in arms while Muslims prayed behind them. Anybody remember that image? In the midst of that conflict, Christians rallying around, protecting their Muslim brothers and sisters as they prayed during the time of prayer. But what didn't go viral was that the Muslims also did that for the Christians right afterwards. That the Muslims gathered around, linked arms, protecting their Christian brothers and sisters as they prayed. And all of them were praying the same prayer. O come, O come, Emmanuel. God, where are you? <laughs> come and rescue us, right? They knew that they had a solidarity. They may have prayed the diff different ways, maybe praying to different pictures of God, but they were in faithful representation that God needed to come and rescue them and their brothers and sisters who believed differently. That was so powerful to me. And I'm sitting there in seminary, and one of my classmates, we were praying over this conflict, and she said something I will never forget. <laughs> she said, God, may you transform our view just a little bit to understand you as a mother. Because no mother would send her children to kill other children of hers. Amen. No mother would send their children to war to kill other children of hers. We often, so often think of God as a distant, patriarchal, wrathful father who would send his children into battle, doesn't care about the outcome as long as his righteousness is shown. We need to reclaim the picture of God as the loving father in the prodigal son who runs after the younger son. And we need to reclaim the picture of God as mother that even Jesus talks about that says, God, you are like a mother hen who wraps her chicks under her wings. <laughs> we don't have an equal picture of God when it comes to the motherly and fatherly attributes. So that's one of the lenses I think we need to remove in our time. When we look at conflicts like in Palestine, we need to remember that we worship a dark-skinned Messiah who came from that region. And Mary, who is grieving over her son's unrightful death, there are mothers grieving their children being killed over there right now. If we can't see the similarities, then we are not looking hard enough in our own faith. The other lens that I think we need to remove is the lens of age. <laughs> It was at least my default, maybe it's yours, that when we think about Father God and Son Jesus, it's an adult parent and an adult Jesus, right? If you heard that joke from the Ricky Bobby movie, he said, he's like, I pray to the sweet Lord baby Jesus. That's who I pray to. He's the sweeter, kinder, gentler baby Jesus that I pray to, right? He's making that joke, but it's funny because we don't often think that way, right? We don't often think that 
God came into the world not as an adult conquering emperor, came into the world as a helpless infant born to an impoverished refugee family in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Right? That is such a powerful picture of how God came into the world. God could have come in any way God wanted to. Could have taken over Rome immediately with legions of angels. But God came into the world intentionally as a helpless baby born to a helpless family with no power to reveal God's power in the world. That will preach all day long. But John's gospel at this point invites us to consider a different image. The child who is born and held to the bosom of the parent is the infant Jesus, laying against the divine parent's chest. And it is an image of God, the eternal parent, embracing the divine child. In John, this child has come to reveal the divine parent to all people and to bring them life and light in the midst of a world filled with despair. My friends, that is a picture of God that the world desperately needs to see. A picture of a parent that wants to scoop everyone up, <laughs> all people, and hold them close the only way that a parent can. Friends, when we miss this expansive, sacrificial love of God, it becomes so easy to justify not making room for others and even ourselves in God's love. It becomes easy to justify why women should be treated, shouldn't be treated equally, why people of color, their lives don't really matter equally, why our LGBTQ siblings should be seen as a threat rather than siblings, or why Palestinian or Israeli children deserve to die for the matters of power. This season of Advent invites us to reflect on how expansive and subversive and radical God's love is. My friends, the love of God is subversive and radical, not because of who it excludes, but because of who it includes. God's being becoming flesh in Jesus is the same being through which all things and all people were created. We still haven't gotten there as a human race to treat each other as if they are all created in the image of God. That is the same word that we are all called to make more room for in our own lives. We can't make more room for Jesus without preparing to also make room for each other and creation. Now let's get really Christmassy at the end of this sermon. As we see in the manger scene, what happens Shepherds come. Was it just an intimate family gathering with Mary and Joseph just being able to quietly celebrate? They're in the middle of nowhere. They should get some privacy, right? In the middle of the desert. They just had a baby. But no, shepherds come, magi come, people from other religions, Zoroastrian priests come, foreign rulers come, angels arrive, all sorts of animals and livestock, and even the stars in the sky move in closer for a better look. Preparing room for the Christ child is to prepare for the room of the interconnected life of God with us and creation. Friends, Advent is a very small, humble journey to a grand conclusion of what God's power looks like humbly coming into this world as a loving parent.
it. I have to say, I get really weepy these days as a dad to a one and a half year old and to a soon to be dad of, of a daughter. And I just can't think of a better image of God wanting to treat every human being that draws breath in the same way that John describes God and Jesus here. That relationship that Jesus has with God is the way that God sees us and wants a relationship with us. The gospel should start out with, you are loved, not you are evil, you are sinful, you are broken. The gospel starts off with, you are loved by the God that created all things, and God wants a relationship with you. Let's have these reflection steps for this first week of, of Advent. I kept them really simple this week. Sometimes I get super complicated, so we're going to keep them simple this week. How does this help you understand God better? If this gave you, maybe stretched your imagination a bit of who God is, maybe contemplate on that thought a little bit. Reflect on that maybe fresh side of God that you maybe didn't think of before. And how does this bring you hope? My, my prayer this Sunday of hope is that you leave being more hopeful than you did coming in here this morning. But also, how does this unsettle you? Friends, we can't invite Jesus in without preparing room for others as well. And that can be unsettling. If our tables at the holidays are any reflection of how unsettling inviting people around the table can be sometimes, hope can also be unsettling because it brings along people we'd just rather not talk to. <laughs> holidays are unique because they kind of bring about forced interaction. You haven't chosen to be with these people all year long, but now you have to right? Some of these family and friends you would prefer just maybe not to interact with for a bit. I was sitting in a coffee shop studying for this um, sermon this last week, and I just overheard so many stories, people sharing with their friends about how great Thanksgiving went, but also how crazy their relatives are, <laughs> and how unsettling it was for them, right? Like, yeah, my crazy uncle came in and just started talking about every controversial topic, and I just had to sit there, and I put more and more turkey in my mouth, so I wouldn't say anything that would get me in trouble, right? No wonder we gained so much weight around the holidays. We're just trying to not say controversial things, but we can't not be in relationship with people, right? It's It'd be really easy if the greatest commandment was love God. Don't care about any of these other people, right? Just love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and write everybody else off. No, the great commandment is love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then love those neighbors <laughs> as yourself, right? It's hard and unsettling. And so part of the reflection I want us to think about this week is when we are pursuing hope, how do we change some of those, our perspective of those tensions and those stress and maybe rethink how we're approaching those things to see renewed relationship happen? And sometimes it can just be in the beauty of changing the subject and continuing the conversation, right? Finding other things you can relate to with that other person. So take those things and reflect on them this week as we continue through Thanks for listening today. Here at Cathedral of the Rockies, our motto is all means all, and we strive to truly live this out. You can help be a part of this by giving to us online. Here at the Amity campus specifically, we feed the hungry through our very active food pantry. Also, 
We are building up our children and youth programs so that we can serve all families in our area and then also provide safe spaces for them to just be themselves. All means all. Any amount given is an investment that allows us to continue to serve those who join us in person and online and serve the growing neighborhoods around our church building. There is a link in the show notes where you can give online. Thanks again for joining us today and have a great rest of your day.